0: Welcome to Voices,
1: a podcast from the Institute for Human Rights and Business.
0: Here, we're
2: seeking to elevate the range of perspectives on the role of business in the world and in people's everyday lives.
1: Hello, everyone. Uh, This is Salil from the Institute of Human Rights and Business, (laughs) and I'm here with uh, four distinguished friends and experts on business and human rights to my extreme left i have uh, not politically just in, in <laughs> the sense of the way we are positioned here right now at the university of bergen where we are running this course with rafto uh, and to my extreme left is royalis cameron from anglo-american to her right is mark taylor who is politically. At the, I'm sorry? <laughs> politically uh, to politically. her right politically <laughs> is mark taylor who is at the university of oslo and with FAFO, the Thick tent. to his right is, uh, which is even more political, now I don't know about that, is <laughs> I mean, Marcela Manubens from the M- multinational corporation Unilever, and to her right, I have Pia Rodolphson who is of course with NOSIF, and has been earlier with the Norwegian Ethics Council. Uh, we have about 30 minutes to talk about where things are with business and human rights, and my first question, I suppose I'll start with you Pia, since you have the mic, which is a good place to start. Where are we about eight years after guiding principles and almost 20 years after the global compact? Where have we reached in the business and human rights space?
2: Yeah, I would say that we see a homogenization, do you say that, among different international initiatives, in that the UN guiding principles are referred to by several the IFC guidelines and the, the OECD guidelines. So that is a good thing, that we don't invent the wheel over and over again, but that we reuse uh, the good ones that we get. I also think that the due diligence process is gaining ground, both in terms of companies using the the guiding principles of the due diligence processes to a far larger extent than earlier, And also that investors and lenders and uh, also in public procurement, these are referred to and used. So uh, I think uh, this is a very promising progress that we see.
1: And Marcela, as a large company which has been in the forefront of the whole conversation about the purpose of a corporation, on one hand, and an early champion of some of these standards, are you happy with the progress? Are you disappointed with it? Do you expect more out of it?
3: Yeah, I mean,
4: I'm always an optimist, but I'm, at times I'm frustrated, right? Let us take, for example, eradication of forced labor, of forced labor, of modern slavery. So what we experienced in the fashion industry in the 90s, that was you know, workers going overseas, particularly for certain countries like China, in very poor conditions for that industry, in abusive conditions and forced labor-like conditions. Now it has become... Uh, we addressed that issue, we thought that we fixed it, and now we have modern slavery. So in that issue, I'm impatient. I have worked really hard with many, all of us, I'm, I'm sure that we are engaged in certain way. But promoting, you know, safety for workers, ensuring that contract labor, that was one of the questions I had before, which is the next generation or informal labor in the worst conditions, is tackled through the work that we do is forefront. And we are working with the Institute of Human Rights and Business in what we call responsible recruitment. The positives, how if you tackle the root cause of forced labor, many of the people are engaged through agents, whether it's an individual or a larger organization. And I'm working in what good looks like and promote that among, you know, industry I think is one of the most effective mechanisms and we are working on three principles. Employer pays, meaning no worker should be paying a fee for a good job. is No passports or IDs or freedom of movement should be part of that. And the third is no bond labor or like conditions, of course. So in that issue, I'm frustrated and I would like us, all of us, to, to do. I mean, we, we talk to everybody, to the Santa Marta Group, which is Pope Francis' initiative, to CGF, to create an um, initiative with all the consumer goods forum companies, with G7, G20, with everybody. So in that is an issue that I don't think that we have made much progress. While in other places... I think that we have. I think that there is a tremendous understanding of the responsibilities of companies, thanks to John Raggi and the UNGPs, even if it's voluntary and the treaty is being discussed right now. But I I I think that and would voluntary change the world. I mean, we are learning that is not the case, right? So so what is the next best thing that we need to do? But there is that engagement. There is that consensus. I have been very fortunate to have a CEO who has been front and central of that. And uh, Whenever I saw a thing, he was a champion of it. Uh, if we get more people like companies and organizations like here, I think that we will advance more. It's a little bit of a long answer. But no, but it's, it's, it's very useful.
1: You've given a very good scenario. Mark, you've been at the forefront of seeking corporate accountability for a long time. We go back a long way talking about complicity of companies and situations of uh, real violence and conflict situations and so on. Are you frustrated by the pace? all these years later?
3: Or do you think they're going at a good clip? Uh, I think it's impossible to know. I think that the, the companies like, like the represented here who talk uh, and are able to show the progress that they're making and the efforts that they're making and the due diligence that, that they conduct and the engagement with workers and communities is a good sign. But one of the problems is that we've literally don't have the data to be able to assess uh, whether we're making progress or not in terms of company performance. States Mm -hmm. don't collect data in their national statistics, like they collect data about a lot of things, but Mm -hmm. they don't don't collect data about whether or not companies in particular sectors, for example, are um, uh, respecting human rights, or on the other hand are uh, excluding their workers from social dialogue or or, uh, repressing trade unions. So there's a fundamental problem in the field of business and human rights, which is that we can't actually measure progress when it comes to the overall trends of whether or not businesses are actually respecting human rights. And there's many attempts to create benchmarks, for example, which is great. Uh, That's really important in order to signal to the markets who are the best performers. But those are very often restricted to what companies themselves say. And uh, a statement of intent. A statement yeah. of intent and, and kind of key performance indicators that are defined by process, mm-hmm. not necessarily impacts. Mm-hmm. And of course, impacts are the standards by which we should be assessing. So I think that there's a real problem around data. But just more generally on the question of, uh, of accountability, you know, 10, 15 years ago when you and I were working on, on, on these issues at a very formative stage. There was a kind of open question as to whether the cases we, that were being brought forward in the courts were anomalous. Were they just sort of one-offs? Was it part of a bigger trend? Uh, and I think today we can say that, in fact, it's, it's part of a growing trend. If you look at the, the cases both on, with respect to human rights, but also with respect to climate cases mm-hmm. against uh, oil, gas and coal companies, but th- those cases keep coming, both kinds of cases. And so I think that, uh, that at least is some indication that uh, the problems aren't, aren't going away uh, and that people are feeling uh, a lack of trust in the ability of governments to protect them or to do the right thing when it comes to ensuring that companies respect, uh, respect human rights.
4: Can I ask a follow-up? You have more cases. Is that because you have more information because of technology and more transparency and therefore vis-a-vis 15-20 years ago?
3: you mean that uh, people on the ground have more access to information and, and, and lawyers and all Everybody. that sort of stuff? Yeah, It's really hard to mm-hmm. know why those cases keep coming, except that there remain problems that, that people don't get solved through social dialogue, through trade unions or... Or the OECD contact points and mechanisms like that. For, for example, yeah. or for you know, normal state mechanisms for, for yeah. preventing those things from happening or responding to them. Uh, and so the re- resort to the courts should always be a last resort, mm-hmm. uh, but in many cases it's kind of the only resort for, mm-hmm. for some people. But as I say, the overall picture is really hard to discern because we don't have the, the bigger picture.
1: So, Pranis, you are in an
3: industry,
1: I mean, and you both have been with an oil company and now you're with a mining company. So, the question I have is, is that the extractive sector tends to get a lot of attention. Some within the group and industry would say there is disproportionate attention, but there is a lot of attention. Do you feel as a company that adheres to some of the standards, or at least attempts to adhere to these standards, that you're being picked upon because you've raised your head above the parapet and therefore people go after you? Does that influence your choices?
0: Yeah, sometimes we have discussions about with an English phrase, you know, being the tall poppy. So, you know, mm-hmm. a poppy is a red flower, It's a tall poppy, you're very visible. Um, I think I can only talk from Anglo's perspective. Um, You know, Anglo has a part of its DNA is around the sort of social consciousness and about being part of the community. The the founder was even talking about our social responsibility 100 years ago. So it's not just about shareholder return, it's about how we can actually work and benefit the communities that are hosting us. So I think Anglo's never been afraid really to sort of, push forward for what it believes in whether or not that's a leadership position or not it depends on the the context but I think it really wants to understand with its purpose and its values how it can push for what it believes in. There was a big example of this was we took the lead in South Africa on HIV and AIDS when nobody wanted to touch it. The president was opposed to even the existence of Exactly. Yeah. In South Africa we had a workforce of I don't know, over 50,000 you no know, large proportion of them had HIV or AIDS. The president was denying the existence of this it. This is of course. We are talking about. This. And so we, as a company, said, "No, actually, we need to do something completely different." So we really wanted to make sure that you know we were getting testing. We were the first company to provide antiretroviral drugs to our workers and then to their dependents. So I think you know that was a really icky subject at the time. That everybody's like, "Why the hell is a mining company talking about things in this space?" And I think. Another one is is around you know what you're talking about in terms of gender-based violence. You know we have big issues mm. in South Africa in gender-based violence. The president has called a national emergency. This is a crisis point within the country. And don't think for one second that the mining companies are exempt and they are a little haven of safety for all of the workers. That is absolutely not the case given the context. And so for us, we really want to be seen to be looking at how are we addressing some of these big societal issues, which are very uncomfortable, these are not things that people want to talk about, they're often taboo, people don't know how to talk about these things, but they are really, really important to us for the safety of our our workers, and of course, nine times out of ten, you know, our workforce are also our communities, and our communities are also our employees. So I think in the world of sort of human rights, there are things where we get, you say picked on but you know what sometimes it's fair game Mm -hmm. and we should be picked on because if we're not being held under scrutiny then again I think that's the role that is very important for the NGOs to do that. I also think it's that's their raison d'etre. I would like to see us getting credit for some of the things that we do do Mm -hmm. and actually but again we, we can't always sort of expect that but the other thing I think is around accountabilities and I think for us in some of our operational contexts, we operate where there is very weak institutions from a government perspective. And so there are some allegations of what we're not doing or we're being held account for things that we are not accountable for. And that's not us trying to say we want to abstain our responsibility. It's just there are certain things we just cannot be accountable for. And I think we, as societies now, I mean, you look around where states' obligations are very clear. But you have a number of states who can't even begin to start trying to fulfill their obligations. And so there is a default to things that actually function, which is often the the corporate sector or the private sector. And I think we all as a society need to have a much more robust discussion and dialogue about accountabilities and really having honest conversations about accountabilities so that where things are not working, how are we ensuring that things as important as human rights are respected, are protected and if there are in weak institution locations, how are we making sure that, that those things are actually taking place? You raised a very important point for address about um, state accountability,
1: and it kind of ties into what I would like to ask all three of you, actually, following on from that. Marcela, the question for you would be, you also operate, um, your company also operates in some fairly difficult situations. Mm-hmm. So if you can touch on state accountability. Mark, you were talking about ability to, you know, trace the process versus the outcome but so often the outcomes are because of the state and not the private sector. So how do we refine that information gathering? And because you've been with the, the Ethics Council and you often look at the information to evaluate companies, whether they should be invested into or not, what kind of information you think these companies can provide to take the process forward?
4: So does a company stay or grows, engage or doesn't engage? when you are in a country that is abusive? Would you stay and engage with the government of Venezuela right now if you know that there are significant abuses? Mm -hmm. Or would you have stayed in Myanmar when there were the abuses of the junta? And even now. Even now,
2: Myanmar has
1: abuses, yeah.
4: So those are real questions. And I think that you were talking about certain issues and when Mark was talking it also reminded me that while everybody has endorsed or most of it have endorsed SDGs they are not, I said it before, not national action mm-hmm. plans and actually even in other spaces like the, the modern slavery that they had you know, governments are not applying the same to mm-hmm. their procurement mm-hmm. so we were instrumental in influencing some of the Governments, although they are not the most difficult that they did launch uh, last year at Anga those principles and I think that they are going to cascade to the others. But I haven't answered your question. I think that in Myanmar we were not there for several very difficult years and when we re-entered the country which I was just coming the year later we did the due diligence that all of you have been asking us for. Um, there is recently in the last Anga not sure which organization uh, presented a listing of the, the companies that have engaged with military procurement. Mm-hmm. Military is uh, relatively independent in, in, in Myanmar and therefore economically. And therefore the issue of procurement has been identified and companies that serve So it's a very difficult uh, and key point. We were happy we were not in that listing. But still, I mean, how do you make sure that in countries where there were significant abuses and probably tainted every party, uh, how do you engage? And, and for me, the example I wanted to give you, uh, many years back in the fashion industry, in the Fair Labor Association, which was one of the first stakeholder organizations, the unions were demanding the footwear and apparel companies to, I'm talking about the late 90s, to exit China. Mm-hmm. Only one company says we are going to do it. That was Levi's Trust. It took them two years to be able to be ready. And by the time that they were ready, they decided against it. But the principle at that moment was, of the companies, including who I was working for, is like if we are in, we are going to be able to, to change that by creating a health and safety committee that they were the beginning of the union, by engaging with different organizations but try to improve the conditions. So uh, there is not a decision fits all and you need to be cognizant of who you are conversing or engaging with uh, of the different ca- countries. Um, and also to all of you, understand that we are, we are being asked to do both, to exit the country as well as to stay mm-hmm. in the country. I, I just try to illustrate a few issues for you, but uh, hopefully to forms to mark.
3: So I want to take issue with uh, a little bit with the the premise of your question because your point that very often it's because of states that, that companies get into trouble, uh, and while that's true, it is in fact the interaction of markets and, mm. and states yeah. that create yeah. these structural realities. Yeah, whether it's forced labor or child labor or. Or whatever uh, different forms of violence or repression; uh, those are structural realities on the ground that arise from poverty, that arise from very long historical yeah, inequalities, yeah. etc. So, and, and those aren't just sort of states as institutions that are responsible for those uh, in in, term, in causal terms. So, if we think about them as structural realities and things that businesses end up helping to perpetuate, or if they're doing the job right, helping to solve. Yeah, the question was, you know, how can we uh, separate in order mm-hmm. to create responsibility and understand responsib- where responsibility lies better. And I think you know there's a couple of answers to that. One is that that very old tried and tested mechanisms of state inspection, for example, of, of labor conditions and in labor markets, have to be uh, invested in, have to be um, uh, moved forward and, and and have to adapt. But I think we also need to think a little bit more uh, creatively. Every time I hear a politician say, you know, launch a new initiative on, on business responsibility or CSR and say uh, and we, as a kind of an afterthought we expect the media and civil society to be the watchdogs you know, I want to put up my hand and say so great, tomorrow we'll be expecting the announcement of the 100 million dollar fund to finance right, all of that watchdog activity because right now it's horribly underfinanced it's treated as though it's a kind of voluntary activity that just happens in and of itself Uh, and there aren't strategic initiatives um, except among a few private funders uh, to consider how we would go about uh, supporting that. And then finally I would say we need to think more creatively about disclosure. Right now we have very passive uh, reporting requirements which are both uh, for both reasons of reputation but also very reasons of legal risk. Companies are limited in what they can actually say about actual impacts Mm. that they detect Mm. themselves as having been involved with. Mm. And that, I think, is an issue that the business and human rights community has kicked down the road and decided we're just going to let auditing Mm. solve that. Mm. And auditing can't solve Mm -mm. that. And so we need to think more creatively. We need to create, for example, mechanisms that empower workers, both workers, effective workers, but also their, their allies in global trade unions, uh, and consumers uh, and investors to demand disclosure mm-hmm. uh, from companies about their due diligence, about the impacts that they detect, and f- find ways to make it possible for companies to disclose on demand when they're asked. I'm talking here about a kind of Freedom of Information Act for right. the private sector. Actually. Yeah. What do you think, Pia, about these ideas? Yeah. I have to make a clarification at first because
2: my the council on ethics they you know as, you know they come in afterwards when yeah. all the decisions have been taken and yes. it's also the wrong decisions to the <laughs> But I think that what Mark is speaking about on disclosure, I think there's a lot of things that could be done in terms of smaller, and smaller, medium-sized companies. Mm-hmm. Because if we look at Norway, it's like 90% of companies are small and medium-sized. Mm-hmm. We, we we speak about laws we need more laws, but we haven't even given them, them an opportunity to do things right first. Mm. So I think that is an important starting point, to really uh, assist but also to demand more reporting from smaller companies, uh, just to make them sustainable uh, and to get things in order. But I see from the investor community, they are screaming about uh, more information, more data, more comparable data over time. and. Systematized and so it's comparable and also over time. So the investors they need this, but it's a it's a question of how to how to push companies to to start this reporting without getting the assistance from the authorities. I think it's really an important governmental issue actually to, to create tools and uh, to uh, kind of. Um, tease the companies to start doing this because it's good for business and it's good for, for yeah, the investor community and, and uh,
4: yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. Yes. Yes. so we disclose a lot we do but if that need appear you're asking um, is from all the companies and is certainly from a small and medium-sized companies mm-hmm. what i would be asking uh, as a positive is alignment in, in, in all these information requests. Because I can tell you, you know, we have a small team and the, the, the decision I need to make, do I spend my day mm-hmm. trying to report or do I spend yeah. my day trying to do? So what we noticed with some of the initiatives that have tried to do what Mark is uh, saying, rightfully so, you know, to bring information together, demand from the companies, I noticed that there was a lack of alignment between UNGPs and all this, uh, and they handpicked certain questions. I have requests from human resources, you know, for human resources, from risk, from this, from the other, from a country. It's, it's tremendous. So I think that coming up to terms in what what matters, you know, yeah, we, we should be on demand. I mean, there they should be information, but cannot be on the demand for the sake of it. Mm. I mean, it has to make sense, and you have to be able to have KPIs, as Mark was mentioning, to measure progress over time, right? And if our companies are doing better, I would hope that consumers, markets, community really prefer our business. Mm. And I'll give you one small point of reference. Our brands that are most uh, sustainable and responsible have grown much faster than the other brands. So, think about Ben & Jerry, Seventh Generation, Dove, you know, the others. So I think that there is hope that we are having some of the transparency that Mark and Pia are asking us and you're pressing for Salia. But my ask is to bring in your roles, to bring more alignment so we can do the Mm -hmm. job but we can do it in an effective manner.
1: So, we have about five minutes, so I want to start with Freudus and come this way with one, one final question to all of you. That civil society and some governments think that a treaty will solve all the problems. A. B. There are companies which have also, just as you have, Marshall, articulated it right now, the companies have routinely said that we want a level playing field, common standards, common rules, and all that. So, without getting into a detailed discussion on the treaty which will keep us here for the next five hours, which is not the aim at all, but assuming it's going to take place and it's assuming there will be a treaty in five years from now. Which are the one or two things that you think must be there in that treaty for it to be meaningful?
0: I don't know. I really don't know. I mean, I think the things that we've talked about here around, I agree with you Mark, everybody has a policy and before that people were asking, have you got a policy tick? That's not a KPI. It really isn't. And, you know, have you done a, a risk assessment tick? That's not a KPI either. It should be much more focused on, on outcomes and the impacts that you're having, both positive and, and negative, mm-hmm. about how you're actually addressing them. I think it would be really around, I really firmly believe around to understand the context. And that really is about really understanding the operational context in which you're going in to do your activities. And that requires time, and people need to really understand that. And I think it also needs to really emphasise and maybe crystallise the multi-stakeholder nature of mm. that. So again, this whole point around accountability. So if businesses are going to go in, it's about really understanding all the different actors in that context and who's going to be accountable and what they're going to do together to ensure that everybody is fulfilling their obligations. So you know, with the treaty, it's being done to sort of you know go into governmental level, but then making sure that. Within those
3: different contexts, you know, business is being given its obligations, but also that the states are held to account as well. Mark? Yeah, could go on for a very long time. I think the treaty as it stands in the the draft, as it stands now, is a very kind of real attempt to create some kind of transnational mechanisms for accountability. So I'm not going to say that. I think that's necessary, and I think to the extent that the treaty manages to push that forward, that's great. But I think what's missing from the treaty is a strategy that empowers the people who are affected by business to defend themselves. Mm-hmm. And I think that so there needs to be some thinking in the treaty about how do we empower affected communities through this international law mechanism of a treaty to defend themselves. Mm-hmm. And so, so that's about trade unions. That's about the right to organize. That's about the right to information to affected communities and protection of defenders and free expression. Protection of human rights defenders, which I believe is mentioned in the in, mm-hmm. in the draft. Mm-hmm. But I think we need to think about the mechanisms that enable that, not mm-hmm. just to mention it, right. but you know, like the right to information and the duty to disclose that I talked about before. It, it, the treaty can't do that, but it can help to. I think, rec- as mm-hmm. just talked about, which is to create the mechanisms at the state level to enable that, to require states. To make sure that their peers, other states, are during the protection of human rights defenders, are allowing trade unions to engage in organizing and social dialogue, are allowing affected communities of artisanal miners or other kinds of uh, informal uh, workers to organize in collectives, you know, etc., uh, in order to protect their own rights, defend and advance their own rights.
4: Goodness. I I think that both you know both of you address very very critical issues. The world has been divided on this, mm-hmm. this, um, on this discussion, right? Between treaty or not treaty. Uh, and the treaty discussion took place because other mechanisms failed, right? Voluntary mechanisms mm-hmm. failed. Mm-hmm. Although there were a lot of good activity, only certain groups have undertaken voluntary implementation mechanisms. What I worry about. It was, it was outlined by both Fridas and Mark, that there is not a balance account. I mean, in the current state, and I, I cannot give you a really total answer to your question until I see the final mm-hmm. product. Of course. Because I think that it has to bring responsibility for all the actors. But at the end of the day, we are in agreement. We have yesterday a very uh, interesting discussion on something else, which we were in different positions. <laughs> But I'm in total agreement with Mark, I mean, at the core of all this activity, it's not the activity per se, but it's the people Mm -hmm. who may have been negatively impacted. So that's what we want to solve. If we create all these, you know, very difficult mechanisms and antagonistic, I would like to put in motion preventive mechanisms. And if that fails, and I have uh, such a framework like the treaty, then and it's effective, i would be very pleased. But I still believe that there is a lot of work to get done for that to cover all the elements that we want to.
1: Are you waiting with bated breath for a treaty? <gasps>
4: uh, well,
2: uh, I think that it should be a treaty that is directed towards states, right. like normal treaties, and could also follow the same pattern as all other treaties under the UN with a reporting system and a follow-up system by treaty bodies and so on. But I think one should focus on states making sure that the companies operating from your country or in your country should do no harm. And they should make good assessments and report externally how they handle these risks that they discover. And also that this should be a responsibility of the boards and that it should have effects if they don't do their, their work properly.
1: I think we have the bare bones of very good ideas which are not terribly new and in fact that's a good and a bad thing that we don't have to reinvent the wheel here. One is transparency, the other is the protection of the wo- ones who are vulnerable, three greater clarity about the role of the state and the corporation, four a recognition that the two are aligned and together and they cannot be taken apart from one another. And fifth is to make sure that there's a common framework and reporting requirement that everyone understands so that we make sure that the people who are affected the most Suffer the least. Mm-hmm. Freudus, Mark, Marcella, Pia, yeah, thanks very much indeed. Oh,
0: Thank you're you. Welcome. Thank you Thank you.